Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Plagiarist is at once hilarious send-up of low-budget American indie filmmaking and a probing inquiry into race, relationships, and the social uncanny. A novelist and her cinematographer boyfriend are waylaid in a snowstorm on their way to visit a friend in upstate New York and are taken in by a kindly yet enigmatic man by the name of Clip who puts them up for the night. But an accidental discovery months later recasts in an unnerving light what seemed to be an agreeable evening stoking resentment and latent and not so latent feelings. And I'll leave it there. The film is called The Plagiarist and we are joined today by the co-screenwriters of the film, and that would be James Keenetz Wilkins and Robin Chavoir. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. The uh, The film is, I, I watched it a couple of times, and there's just so many elements going on in the film, so many different sort of cross-currents uh, in terms of storytelling, the way you store, tell the story, and also the m- very different relationships that are shared on a lot of different levels in the film. What I'm trying to say, it's a very interesting and complex story, but it's also a very straightforward telling of the story. It's stripped down to its bare essence. I'll start with you, um, Robin. Talk us through sort of the origins of how the plagiarist came about. I think James had the original, like, idea of... um the relationship between Clip and, and the boy and then the, you know, like the general outline. And then we, we um, talked it through, I guess. And then we, I don't know, wrote, like wrote a draft and then, and uh, passed it back and forth. So, so the, so the beginning of this was about Clip. Is that how, was he the kind of the catalyst for the story or was, was is that what you're describing a little bit? I think, yeah, I think in general, cause we'd worked with Clip a couple of times or once before that. And um, I think we were both really interested in writing something and producing something that we could do with what we had at our disposal. So um, I, the way I feel about it was it was a story that was kind of rooted in very like concrete realities that surrounded us at the time. And Clip was like a guy we'd known that was just up for being in a movie. Yeah, I, I, and I'd add to that, I guess at the time, which it wasn't that long ago, it was just a few years ago um, when we started writing it. We had been working collaboratively on other projects and also independently on stuff and kind of have like our own sort of practices going on. You know, it's it's been like an ongoing challenge to, to sort of make, to, I mean, making movies is hard, it's expensive. This movie in a lot of ways was kind of like an attempt to just do, to, to, to solve that. <laughs> um, not, not Maybe not solve it, but to have a movie done within a, a year, basically. Um, I, it was, I think the entire timeline from conception to premiere was probably like a year and a half, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. Being that you're talking about Clip being uh, a bit of an inspiration for making the film, there are, uh, one of the significant themes that comes through in The Plagiarist is the relationship of race. And I don't want to overstate its importance in the film in terms of the telling of the story. And because there's so much going on here, was that 
a spark of uh, certainly it's a part of the film was that how important was race in the relationships we have with race in the film i mean i, mean, I think it's huge huge hugely important okay um and i i mean uh, I, one one way of also maybe thinking about what robin said about using what we had available it, it, that's an inher inherently objectifying in a, in, in, a, in a way that I, I mean sort of just like clinically like he in a lot of ways clips availability was as a character a potential character as like an object in the same way that the camera that we shot the movie on was also an available object and so the script in a lot of ways took these these pre-existing components and combined them together so for, what I'm trying to say is like this, the camera was written into the screenplay. It's it, it like in the first, on the first page, it says like basically this movie will be shot on this camera that's then referred to within the story. Clip two is, is I, I think at least it was used in that way. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of make a little bit of a leap to how a person might be objectified, you know, mm -hmm. by us, by us in terms of our filmmaking desire, perhaps mm -hmm. um, harmless. But I think then by extension, the character's, in terms of how they, you know, interpret this guy who they know nothing about except for his like external qualities. He's an older black man on the side of the road who offers them help, and they have to basically go off of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. It, then it gets complicated when things are added that don't um, don't line up, or or you know, like like a young white boy in his in his care, you know. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to. No, Robin, anything to to add to that? Um, yeah, I would agree that the, the racial component is very important and like structural to how the film works and obviously how the story works, but also how the film is, is understood. I, one more thing that I forgot to mention was that about the, the concrete or like modular nature of the project is that Tyler, for instance, like Tyler himself is like a stock character kind of from a previous movie that was like inserted into this story. I think what the film does a lot is like mix uh, narrative or like fictional worlds and ideas with like hyper real, uh, very concrete realities. Um, so to me, Clip is is um, central in that because he's like a very real person. Can I just say, it Clip's uh, character is the one person in the film who is almost without guile, and yet. Oh, so much is ascribed to him in the course of the telling of the story. He is mm -hmm. the most guileless person in the film, in my opinion. And yet, it's it, it. And I think this reflects on what we're talking about in terms of race and the relationship to race in the story. And also, another part of that, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit here. His character and his bearing in the film is such a contrast to uh, Tyler and Anna, who explain or over explain everything with every possible permutation of motivation in the film and so it's such a contrast again i'm not sure of what my question is here i'm just it's an observation but i i'm I, i'm assuming intent was part of why that played out the way it did yeah i think it's like well that to me is like a lot of it is about the pra practical nature of that you have these two characters, Tyler and Anna, who are like going to be played by real actors, you know, or at least uh, Lucy is a real, real actor. And with Clip, he's like not an actor. So you have to like, and we also have, we had Clip for a much more limited time than we had them. So there's less time to rehearse and stuff. So 
I think his role and and personality in that in the film is like whittled down for like practical reasons. Um, but but also right? but but he's like he is the only character slash person in this kind of almost like docu fiction manner that like a character was written for him. It's like it's like purposely unclear or purposely I guess of our interest to to, to argue like. Is this? Are, are we depicting Clip, or is this like an extrapolation of a Clip-like entity? You know, I mean, the character is called Clip. He is Clip. Um, it is him. It isn't him. And I, I think just to, 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 to just sort of build off of what Robin's saying about the the actors and the non-actors, in a lot of ways, this movie presents like a spectrum of acting styles that are kind of like battling it out. So Clip, just <laughs> the, back, the backstory is that he is a performer. He's been performing in P uh, Funk, uh, Parliament Funkadelic, um, since he was a teenager. He's a musician but he's never acted before. And so he's essentially a non-actor who's willing to act. And then Eamon, who played, Eamon Monaghan, who played Tyler, is an artist who happens to act, but he doesn't take acting seriously as like his career. And then you sort of move into um, Lucy and Emily, uh, Lucy Kaminsky and Emily Davis, who play the two women who are pursuing, you know, they're actor-actors. Like they... Um, yeah. They are increasingly bigger things, and you know you'll you'll be seeing them hopefully um, on large screens if we ever go to the movies again. Um, <laughs> the in a way, the movie kind of moves from like a like clips domain, the domain of the the non actor, to a more sort of naturalistic style in a way, uh, which actually is mirrored by the way that the movie was shot. Yes, and I, thank you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you're talking about these differing styles of acting, but also. The story itself has two or three different shifts in the film that are dramatic, and and not only are they dramatic in terms of the narrative, but they're also dramatic in terms of the look of the film and the style. So, definitely, we're talking about the plagiarist, and we're we're speaking with the two screenwriters uh, for responsible for the film, and that would be James Keenitz Wilkins as well as Robin Chavois. And uh, the uh, it just there's just a lot of things for a film that is in some ways, as I said, very straightforward. There's just so much going on, and I I uh, I just so admire filmmaking that's able to to strip away artifice at, at the same time give you a lot to think about. Uh, so can, can I add, thank yes, you? Um, yeah. Can I just add? I don't know if this is a spoiler and should be included or not, but. Um, so just to piggyback on how it was shot, like the sort of like secret, I guess, that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you know it in a way, but it kind of does. It's not crucial to the understanding of the story, I guess, is that Clip never, um, he never was in the same room as um, the other actors. He never met them. Um, and so that just sort of fundamentally defined the way that the first act looks because it's edited in pieces and it's a completely... It's actually edited. It's actually shot and edited the way most Hollywood movies are made, which is with shot reverse shot, really basic film grammar. But in this case, it was reflecting, as Robin was saying, to just on the ground realities of, of clips, like dealing with clip in, in, intimately and individually and based on his schedule. Um, however, what that was also written into the screenplay from the beginning, because we knew that we would have to work with him in this way, yeah. and we wanted wanted to see what sort of what the, you know, the, the ramifications of that would be. I wanted to ask you about the uh the characters Anna and Tyler 
they, in my estimation, I'm a, I'm a white guy, so I can speak with some authority on this subject. You guys pretty much ran the basis of what I would consider to be sort of white whining privilege checklist. I mean, almost everything that I, it, I could think of was in this film in some way or another about what their overwhelming concerns with, the, with their life were. In the, and in the context of something that is not that serious. I mean, I, I, you did a great job. <laughs> you did a great job of really, like I said, running the basis on that. Um, who, do I tr who do I ascribe responsibility to that? Um, I guess, well, for Tyler is a character that I'd written in another movie, so I feel like Tyler's like this part of me that is like, missing a few things that i consider like maybe redeeming or something but um <laughs> to me they're like yeah i think you're it's a very accurate assessment um to me their concerns are like like if you only read the new york times that's kind of like the concerns of, of new york times writers is like those like being like feeling like violated by being told a false story mm -hmm. as if it's a deep you know like a horrible crime or something like that yeah i well, I feel like it's I feel like it's more like the New Yorker. It's like this sort of like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like this, there's this sort of. The, the, I actually, I mean, I grew, you know grew up reading reading that and like it, sort of associating it with like erudition and whatever. Recently, I've actually it's, I found it very hard to to deal with because it's, it's the way that people read these like ten page long articles that are well written and you know about something very interesting, like a profile on a, I don't know a jazz musician or something, but then and then people talk about. They talk about the articles as if they have had like firsthand experience and knowledge. Yes. It's sort of like this like <laughs> this weird relationship to knowledge that I think is like You're talking about readers. Readers of the New Yorker, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I mean is reflected in just the way I think people just approach knowledge, like on a sort of flat horizontal way with the internet these days. Yeah, there's like this sort of know-it-all. I mean, Tyler is to me like that. He embodies that kind of like touching on something and like sort of processing it really quickly and then assuming that like he can somehow has it been able to see all sides like instantly right um, right he's the great extrapolator in the film he extrapolates yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but but what's weird about it, i feel like the, the weird counterbalance is that like oftentimes he's not wrong right you know what i mean yeah. it's just that he's not right with like depth or something you right know? yeah or, or his like motivation in my opinion yeah least. yeah i agree yeah his, i feel like tyler to me can can find a reason for anything and he's really good at that maybe that's what you're saying but it's always it's always very irresponsible it's like they're always very self-serving yeah yeah you know, like because he doesn't want to think about sex slaves he attributes it to like an anti-immigration paranoia or something you know just because he doesn't want to think about it so he like finds a good reason right um well even even the what i would call the central a grievance in the film is how Anna is processing what Clip was able to beautifully retell as the, this plagiarized passage from this book was, in my opinion, just so completely in line with what we're talking about. Why is she so aggrieved over the fact that this man did an amazing, remarkable job of being moved enough by this passage in a book to be able to recall it in a way he never presented it as something different than... Is sort of a story. I, I just I thought that part was like for me, her reaction or overreaction, and how it impacted her is kind of in the same vein as what we're talking about with the New Yorker analogy. So that that idea of credit and authorship, right? I mean, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and like being able, being able to like reap the rewards of, of, I mean, I think, I think Anna is ultimately a, a careerist. Um, yeah. You know, or, or types like her. Well, well I, guess, I guess my question would be, if someone had done what Clip did to her novel and done what Clip did, recited as if it was a story that came out of his life, what would her reaction be? It would be uh, euphoria, because she could, that yeah, means she's, world, she's world famous, and then already and that someone would do that i think that's that, that's the kind of that's what i meant by careerism is that it's not even about the words or the meaning of the words or the poetry behind it or whatever you want to whatever spiritual <laughs> element it, it's imbued with um i think at least i'm it, like that's there but anna's interpretation is one more of like like i think like a social line that was crossed and i think that that's that's really when you start to talk about plagiarism i don't know if you've ever been Oops, Robin seems to have. Oh, there you go. If you go on Twitter and you look up, you just look type in the word plagiarism. People literally call they, they want to execute plagiarists. I mean, Twitter is <laughs> a vile, vile like cesspool. Yeah. But like, but the, the the language around plagiarism and like for like plagiarizing a tweet, which is probably in most people's cases like <laughs> like a cliched idea that they've regurgitated themselves already. But they want like this like formatting of like whatever like X number characters to be like forever associated with their account so they can have followers, whatever. It just it just reflects this broader sense of like personal branding that I think generationally Tyler and Anna are more awash in than someone like Clip um well, would be. Well isn't yeah, it I feel like... oh, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead, Robin, please. Uh, I was gonna say I feel like what the film captures and kind of in instinctually is like this new era were these sort of like Anna like loved these old writers and Tyler loved these old filmmakers and they grew up thinking that they were like somehow the only one of the few people who like idolized these people or like really studied them when like now with just like everyone goes to college everyone has Wikipedia everyone has access to this like everyone knows about this and everyone is almost equally capable of like being the next great writer in a sense and I feel like it's so there's this like clinging to these like old standards of of authorship and stuff that Anna, uh, especially Anna has, that she's like she's not ready for the modern era when like stuff just gets washed away so quickly and appears. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's or or, like, or even or even everyone equally being ed- just maybe not the next great writer, but just educated, which then I think reveals the sort of cracks and the sort of liberal like or the, or the contradictions where you know sort of like co- collective democratic education where everyone has risen up together is should be the ideal right when in fact it 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 starts to threaten the kind of elitism in being like a, a renowned writer or something like that you know yeah it, you have to have like a mass below you like yeah it threatens your place at the top that's just that's just there you know that's always been there but now anna yeah i think she's just like panicking and a lot of people panic because there's just so much competition and things move so fast I feel like that's just this a new type of person, like a, a young millennial and stuff that experiences this. Well, well that's why Arsgard is such a not to spoil. I mean, if this is a spoiler, we can cut it. But like, Arsgard is is a odd figure in our moment. Um, and I think for two really big reasons. Like, one is because, well, the simp- like a simple side reason is that his fame in the U.S. is like very delayed. It's like fifteen years delayed because um, all of his books had to be translated before. So he was like really famous in Norway and abroad, and then that became really, really famous. <laughs> um, 
So, there, but so like a lot of the experiences he's writing about are like you've got this like 15 year lag almost, which is strange. Yeah. But then also he embodies the cra- craggy cigar cigarette smoking like white male handsome auteur um, <laughs> character that um, like cultural studies has been like railing against for a long a long right, while yeah. now. Yet somehow. He's able. He's been able to aikido it and make it work. So it's almost like either nothing's changed or everything has, where we're back to square one. And, and I don't actually have a problem with it personally. I just find it really interesting. Yeah. Like I think someone like Anna probably uh-huh. he makes her head explode. You know, it's striking in like the era of wokeness of hyper wokeness. Nosgard, I feel, made his like like he became so mainstream, like yeah. that type of writer, which was like like it wasn't at all about identity and something. And his identity was this like traditional right. Um, well, well, just to pursue yeah. that a little bit more, uh, is some of this insecurity about identity in a world where uh, the democratization with through of of our, our identity through social media, isn't some of this just sort of wanting to cling to something that's yours? And in a world where where we're awash in information and stories and netflix and amazon isn't is that some of it is there a wanting to be you know i'm here kind of mentality you mean on anna's yeah yeah anna's i mean i think all artists in some way whether no matter how democratic they feel their work is or how you know how to the, the their gift to the world or their their whatever i'm probably not saying that very well but at the same time, there's this need to be known for who you are. I'd say all people. I think it, pre- yeah, it pre- yeah, predates yeah. like even yeah. being one deciding to become an artist. Yeah, which is which is part of the contradiction I think we're talking about, which is like if everyone is educated with like these these sort of um, the same sort of set of ideals and and knowledge appreciation, what happens to baby boomer? I don't want to get like too generational because it's sort of like pseudoscience, but I am kind of obsessed personally with like the sort of boomer like boom, boomers to millennials to gen z's um or now gen alpha just the way that ideals are are passed down and also filmically how that's related if i remember correctly i think our generation because we're both roughly like older millennials like the oldest millennials i guess mm-hmm. um i remember like in the 90s and stuff like people news, news articles talking about how like we were like a coddled coddled kids like the kids of boomers yeah or like we're like told that they were special all the time and like went to like mm-hmm. experimental alternative preschools and things <laughs> like that you know what i mean you know like that kind of stuff and i do think that there's some truth to that at least amongst a certain class bracket and but but the, but the thing that shifted is that then yeah like the internet that sort of knowledge acquisition <laughs> abilities has like surpassed yeah maybe the um the chance for the whole generation to like really shine, you know, or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's this shadowing happening. Yeah. To me, Anna really typifies that, that person. Like I imagine that she went through a, through a very nice preschool and all that. And then she's just shocked. She's like bewildered. And I also think with the, the, ver- the verbosity is that, is that the word there for, of these characters is that I think that millennials were raised by boomers who constantly bragged about their hippie credentials and their protesting stuff and all these active things that they did. And yet the boomers engendered like, you know, the internet and, and Steve Jobs, like that type of world where millennials don't even do anything. They don't have like concrete action-based experiences and it's all kind of words after a while. And I think with that comes this sort of like anxiety. It's like this strange neuroses where like, like 
you get your body tattooed with all these things that have nothing to do with experiences. They're all about like thoughts you have or something, you know? And I think it's like that the millennials and like anyone raised in the internet age, it's like an incredibly like cerebral existence. One of my favorite films, speaking of indie films, you, in Dogma 95 is brought up in, in the film, which I, as a movement I initially thought was fantastic, and I still think there are a lot of merit, there's a lot of merit to it, but Celebration, Breaking the Waves, mm. some of these early works were just un, in, they're incredible. And also a film that this reminds me of uh, in terms of the look of it, Andrew Bojalski's film uh, Computer Chess. I think it might have even been shot on the kind of camera that you use in this film. We didn't get into the, the, the sh you shot some of yeah. this, a lot of the film on this older 1970s era camera. Is that no, right? 80s. 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 And actually, I can, I can, I don't, forgive me because I, you're, you're going to, um, you just triggered, triggered me. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> uh, in a, in a, like the inner, like, I guess, nerd or something um, uh, that, uh, it w was necessary, I think, for like laying the ground, the, the the technical groundwork for this movie and yeah. other stuff I've worked on. Um, uh, there's a lot here. Um, I'll just try <laughs> to keep this simple. So b basically, the, the the movie was shot in a Sony um, BVW 200 Betacam um, shoulder mount, like journalist camera. Right. Y you know, like the big kind that you'd see like big tough guys running around with, and a camera that was what mostly used between the mid 80s and the mid 90s. And so it's very very associated with like. I don't know, like the show Cops or something, um, and just like broadcast news of that era. The key difference between that and like computer chess, which I actually haven't, I've only seen excerpts of, I really do want to watch that movie because people have brought it up before, is that um, I think, and I could be wrong here, that movie was shot on a on a um, an older system. And I think it was a dual system where you have the body of the camera separate from the recorder. I think you're um, right. I think you're right. And and yeah. the key difference is like like the history of like video art and video cameras and all of that like goes back actually goes back I think until like the 50s. Uh, arguably, systems were cumbersome basically um, up until Sony introduced the beta system, which allowed for like like your deck to be attached to your lens, so you could actually go out into the field without carrying around a lot of stuff right. and that and that's why broadcast news became such a big thing in the 80s you know you know showing up at a crime scene or whatever and just rolling tape and so there's a specific like relationship to to broadcast video that the plagiarist has and it, and it's slightly different it's like weirdly it's really it's actually it's weirdly specific and slightly different than this sort of like the handheld lexicon right, of like right. like consumer handheld like you see like in like reality bites or like um well, sexualized videotape or, right. or, or Blair Witch or the big chill yeah. i'm just trying to think of like version of, of examples that would have been like 80s and stuff too so like yeah like i guess for me personally i'm really interested in the specificity of formats but also just how movies are specific yeah, okay. you shoot you shoot them in a period of time no matter what you do no matter what kind of like contortions you go through to hide like when you made the movie like the cracks are going to show you know yeah. so in a lot of ways i'm personally interested in like talking just directly about it and being like 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 and so like there's a funny irony I think with this movie where it's like it's shot like if you were just turn it on TV you'd be like oh this looks old this looks like it's from the 80s but actually it's there's no attempt to hide the fact that it's a contemporary film within the image yeah. quality yeah. you know yeah and so it's kind of got this weird like layering that um I guess like I think it, I would hope at least that it kind of deflates while sort of creating a nostalgic vibe it also sort of like deflates or like self criticizes like. Um, the nostalgic impulse, you know, instead of just like 
I do think other filmmakers often will just pick up an old camera and be like, this looks cool. Like, I love the look of like, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. old camera, like whatever, like this, like it's VHS, but it's like, it's not VHS, it's beta cam. And that has a lineage and a history and a politics as well. I Even if you can't tell the difference with your eye. Go, yeah. Go ahead, Ro. Yeah. To me, one thing it does in that, in that vein is that it does, I, you know, things have their own type of beauty and stuff, but it does like when Anna's like having a, a meltdown, you're watching it through this kind of like, alienating lens that's slightly harder you know it's not like the absolute current camera where you're just like sucked in instantly to someone's story and therefore into like their whole life and their whole point of view you're slightly like you just view it with a slightly more critical eye and i feel like the film throughout does that it like does these like it is made like a hollywood movie and it is a very like straightforward narrative thing but then it always has these things that kind of fall out and like lead you to another way of thinking about it whether it's through like the the technical thing or even like for instance the casting which i think that relates to the earlier race question is like like when i ran into cliff he was like oh i really like the movie like we're talking because he lives in my town he's like but i really think it'd be much better if if you revealed that the boy was my son with uh alice Allison. the Allison character right and i was thinking i was like there's no way that my well, the boy is my son that he's be your son, but but then it's like why not like in the realm of film when you see someone's kid you're not like that's not that person's kid you can tell right in every show when there's a parent and the kid you know that that's not the kid they don't they don't have those specific similarities yet you just assume because it's a movie you just take it for granted yet there's a big a big problem there like a big logical problem there and just tricking someone into believing it's real but you just go with it you know what i mean and yeah, i feel yeah. like clip's point about that being his son with allison is that while it's kind of outlandish story-wise it's like there's a chance that that's possible do you know what i mean in yeah. the film world yeah. it just may be like the sloppiest casting ever but it's still <laughs> it's still <laughs> it's still there's still a chance you know what i mean so if you want to view it that way you're kind of teased to to entertain that because I think a lot of the other facets of the film aren't going all the way in one direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I would maybe add just to that, or just uh, just an earlier, the, just the, the dimension of like dogma and, and all of Like, even though in a way Tyler is like, I think the script lampoons almost everything. But I think what's maybe more, for me at least, more important is that this is actually it, it time stamps like Tyler's Tyler's coming of age, you know, like there's, and it also creates like a kind of sort of internal history of, of like the, these sort of indie film cycles, you know, where I feel like every 10 years or so, there's a kind of like rehashing of like what the values of, of, of making a movie on your own or for low budget outside of the system is, you know, mm-hmm. and Tyler just happened to come of age. Probably he was like in high school, late high school or something like that when dogma was like at its peak, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, as, as, as it is for us. And so he actually doesn't, he's fixated on this, on a certain moment, you know, he's, he's become specified. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's not like an early nineties indie guy. He's also, it's interesting because people write about this as being like a satire or, or parody, I guess, of, um, of Mumblecore. Mumblecore. And we're actually like, I've actually never, this 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 reveals a big crack in my film viewing. I've actually never <laughs> seen a I've never seen a mumblecore movie, just because like I felt like I knew enough about them just by reading about them. But it also didn't hit in the moment when I was I was consuming a lot of I was I was more Tyler like frankly I was like right. a dog 
dog may guy like and, and, and viewing backwards almost in a yeah, way yeah. when I was younger and it's interesting like how these like what does that mean you know like I do think it relates to mumblecore yeah. but I think the impulses are the same but the, the movies are different I was gonna say the writing style is so it almost seems like it's not I wouldn't call it hyper real but it is like if you take a transcript of people talking it just goes on and on and on and it's not structured and it's, it's not like geared towards like a point you know for scene and the way that this is written is very verbal and kind of meanders but i would think that a mumblecore fan would hate this movie or would like really have issues with it well this movie's written i mean it's written it's like mumblecore movies like frank like they they as far as i mean they some of them were written but like yeah well they they were built off of like improvisation right 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 exactly and well, this is a very controlled, I think, a very controlled script and very controlled movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting you're talking about Mumblecore because Andrew Brzezelski is definitely lumped into the Mumblecore, right? Beeswax and uh, Computer Chess. His early films are definitely in that realm. But isn't he the one Mumblecore guy that also rejects Mumblecore? Well, like, now, well, supporting the girls, you know, he's yeah. really definitely be, his filmmaking is definitely. I'll say evolve, but change certainly, and yeah, yeah, no, yeah, there's yeah. and and given what you were talking about earlier in our conversation about the constraints in the production of a film, you work with what you have. I think the fact that people are going out and making films and however we want to characterize them or label them after the fact is is what we do. But at the same time, getting a good story out with with you know a well told story in an interesting way uh, is I don't really care. I mean, I'm old enough now. I'm a boomer actually so i can look back on all this stuff but a huge fan of dogma 95 a huge fan of mumblecore a huge fan of whatever it is just do it well in my opinion and so that's that's where i come from when i when i see films but i there's one and this is such a tangential conversation i I don't want to pursue it necessarily now we love we love tangential conversation well well go back to the 1990s speak in the 1990s pbs was running a series for i don't know how many years probably five or six years called the 90s i don't know if you remember that it was basically based on the idea that they they was literally giving uh, video cameras to people all over the world and have them shoot you know a 10 or 15 minute or 20 minute basically a story of their life and that to me is one of the untold most interesting democratizations of art and cinema that has I never hear anyone talk about. The '90s was an amazing show for what it did really? and for what it did. Yeah, so uh, really, uh, just just giving away cameras to basically you know people to tell their stories all over the world. So yeah, check yeah. it out. So anyway, what I guess I'm saying in a broad way is your film is. In my, it just fits. In, it fits, but it doesn't fit in so many different categories of what people presume filmmakers to be doing, and that's what I really appreciate about it as well. Another thing I really like. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, I've really I've taken up a, a, an awful lot of your morning or my morning and your afternoon here. I really do appreciate it. I I really uh, congratulations. Uh, all the best. You're in on Kim Stem. Um, how can people see the film besides going to Kim Stem? What, what's the best way for people to see The Plagiarist? You, you can catch the movie starting May 5th on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Xbox for the gamer fans, <laughs> <laughs> Voodoo, In Demand. There's a number of yeah. places yeah. to go. Yeah. So just 
give it a search. Well, I hope you're both working on um, another project moving forward. Uh, if you're working together, great. Uh, I, I failed to mention, James, that you're also the cinematographer. You wore a lot. Of, you both wore a lot of hats in the production of the film. Congrats on, on producer, co-producers, cinematographer, lots of things, and uh, a labor of love, I'm sure, for both of you. So I, I really appreciate your time today. We've been talking with the co-screenwriters, co-producers, cinematographer for this remarkably uh, accomplished new film called The Plagiarist. The film uh, we've been speaking with James Keenitz Wilkins and Robin Chavois. Thank you so much for to, for being here on Film School Radio. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, wow. thanks so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 